by way of introduction today, today's message is about Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. His decisive victory over the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, all of them hating Jehovah and the people of Israel, is one of the most powerful and dramatic spiritual battles ever fought by the Lord God Almighty over Israel's foes and the servants of Satan. Uh, I would encourage you to read what it has to say there in the text in verse 19. We didn't read that this morning, but you can read it. While studying for this message, I remembered a sermon by Pastor Leroy Cole called No Final Victories in Life. I was much younger at the time, a lot younger, and had not been in the ministry for very long, but his message left a lasting impression upon my heart as to the need for vigilance and steadfastness uh, in my own Christian walk. For example, Gideon's army of 300 men had only one requirement, that they lap the water like a dog so as to stand prepared and be ready to fight. See Judges chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. Think about 300 men of God against 10,000 Philistines. If you remember the story, you remember how that God keeps telling Gideon, it's too many, it's too many. And Gideon's thinking all the time, we need more people, you know. How are we going to fight against 10,000? And so this is the conflict that we often see in Scripture is that God's way is not our way. And we as humans think that, you know, the, the more there is, the mightier we can uh, be in battle. But God said no. He kept telling uh, Gideon to reduce the size of his men so that there wasn't so many that uh, somehow or another the men would begin to think, look what we've done for God. But he wanted enough so that they could clearly see that it was God who was the one who won the battle and not them. And it's often that way as we begin to look at the challenges of service when we begin to serve the Lord with our lives. Is there anyone here who is completely satisfied with all the workers that we have at our church? Is there anyone here who would say without equivocation that we don't need any more members? That we can't use a bigger offering? And yet all of these things are measured in the sense of how men look at them and not in necessarily the sense of how God is showing himself to us. And so we find that this is the, this is the difficulty that we have as God's people, learning how to be servants of God in a world that doesn't seem to make sense, learning how to be faithful to God when it's very difficult to be faithful. And yet these are the kinds of things that we need to learn if indeed we're going to say that it is God who is the one who gives the victory and not us. And so this morning I hope and pray that, as uh, Pastor Leroy Cole said, there are no final victories in this life. 
Because even if we have a, a marvelous Sunday where that there's some great dynamic uh, incident where God shows himself to us, the next day it's life as usual and we have to do it all over again. And that is not the way we read the scriptures. When you look at the Old Testament, and I think that this is quite typical of all of us, we see the mountain peaks and we see that, you know, that Abraham meets with God and that in 25 years later, Abraham meets with God again. Is that the way you read it? Well, that's how it happened. And yet, we think that somehow or another, those mountain peak experiences, they were happening day after day. And that's not the case at all. God spoke with Abraham and 25 years later after he told Abraham that he would have an heir of his seed, then we hear about Isaac. 25 years later. Well, what was God waiting for? What was the Lord thinking? Well, of course we know because the scripture tells us plainly that he wanted it to be a seed that was of faith and not of flesh. And so there's a lot of times when we struggle with things for a long time before we see any kind of victory. And even then, as long as this life is a part of our lives, it's not a final victory. But we have to continue to live faithfully for the Lord. So as I said, I was a lot younger in those days. And as we see the issue with Gideon and his 300 men, Think about 300 men of God against 10,000 Philistines. But then we begin to think in terms of if you look at their, their readiness for battle, we saw where God watched them carefully and he said those that pick the water up with their hand and lap it like a dog, you know, looking and being prepared for what was around them as far as the battle was concerned, those were the ones that he would then use to go against the Philistines. Anybody remember what the instruments of battle were for God? What did they have to take with them? Come on. How many have not read the story of Gideon? Do you remember that they had to take lights inside of pitchers? Remember that? What she's looking it up? <laughs> and when they got there, they were not supposed to say anything or do anything until God said to give the sound. And then they were supposed to break the pictures and they were supposed to yell out and say the battle or the, uh, the how'd it go? I just lost it. Um, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. Or the sword of the Lord and, and yeah, Gideon. And uh, that's the only thing they said. And God stuck, struck fear into the Philistines to the point where that they were so confused in the battle that they wound up killing themselves. And the beauty of that is that it was the Lord's battle. The 300 men didn't do anything except break the pitchers with light in them and cry out the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And you know, it, it just seems strange to us how a battle could be won with those few little things. I mean, he didn't have them on an exercise program. Uh, they didn't have large uh, guns so that they were able to outnumber their enemy. 
they went in there with a pitcher uh, with a light inside that when they broke it, the light shined. And they cried out with a loud voice, the battle of the, uh, of the, the, Lord of, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. I better stop saying it and I'm going to get it messed up. Uh, worse than it is already. So you think about that and you begin to wonder, well, what kind of a warfare is this? Well, it's God's warfare, not ours. And we need to see the beauty of what God is doing in these things. All right? This is still the introduction, so we better move along. We cannot rely on what we have done for God in the past as if those spiritual successes will somehow carry us through the rest of life. Each day presents us with new challenges and opportunities of service for the glory of Christ our Savior. Like the Apostle Paul said, with regard to his own service to the Lord, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may hold of, uh, take, lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Uh, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things uh, which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here we see Paul talking about his, his struggle, his ongoing struggle with his Christian experience here on this earth. And it ought to be ours. We have a goal as Christians. And that goal is not just to labor for Christ for a certain number of years and then retire. And we have had a church filled with the elderly for the past 30 years that I've been here who have continually served God with their lives. And even in their old age, they do all that they can physically and spiritually to be here and to pray for us as a people and to pray for this church. And I thank God for that witness and that testimony for all of us, especially as young, younger folks, us, you know, me and you, uh, we keep thinking, you know, the Lord, we need your help. And we do. But also the, the spiritual battle is the Lord's. And we have to be faithful servants to that which God has called us to. And that is pressing towards that mark of servanthood. Today's message has to do with another aspect of our Christian service and our preparation for future service to the Lord. This message from God's Word is also one that should leave us with a lasting impression of the Lord's purpose and His calling of each one of us to serve and sacrifice as one of his saints. The idea expressed in our text of us being held back by God or set apart in reserve as a position of service and yet of us also being held in uh, preservation at the ready in order for God to set us apart, that is, keep us for his special purpose and use. Now, we aren't necessarily saying that God is declaring that we have to do our battle right now. 
But one thing it is saying is that we have to be prepared to do battle. In preparation, God has reserved us as servants of His to be used by Him when He chooses. Now, do we have anything like that in, in today in our, in our world that we are a part of? I, I think we do. Um, in Luke 4.10 it says, He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you. So the idea of this Greek word uh, keep is diaphalous uh, lasso, meaning to guard thoroughly, to protect. Note what our text in 1 Kings declares, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has not kissed the statue of Baal, or him. This is not the normal kind of service we think of uh, when we talk about serving Christ, especially in today's parlance. Usually there is more action and personal involvement with how we perceive to do the Lord's bidding. But these men of God were held in reserve by God himself for the purpose of personal purity and right and godly worship unto the Lord and for his holy consecrated service. I wonder if that's how we think about how we are as God's people. I mean, okay, let's admit it. I haven't been called upon by the Lord to do any great or spectacular thing. I haven't been chosen by the Lord to fight against an enemy that, uh, you know, were, that were called out and gathered together for that purpose. And yet each day that I get up, I need to understand that I'm the Lord's servant. And I need to prepare myself so that I can be served or so that I can serve the Lord with my life. And the only way that'll happen is if we see ourselves the way God sees us. If we see ourselves as those who have been set in reserve and in preparation for Him to use when His time is ready. And that's what we must do. The idea here again is that we are serving God and we're not serving ourselves. We find that... Uh, in 1 Kings, it declares, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Sometimes we, we stop and think about what our life really uh, is about as far as uh, our service to God. And we don't have any idols of Baal today, do we? Or do we? Aren't there all kinds of worldly idols out here that other people worship and they just, uh, you know, they drive themselves in order that they might gain those things? What about the bumper sticker that's on the back of cars that says, you know, he who gains the most toys wins at the end, you know, or whatever it is. Something like that. Our lives can be very easily moved from being focused on Christ to being focused on what things this world has around us. 
And even though it's not a fetish, it's not a stone or a wooden or a brass or a silver or a gold statue of something, yet in our eyes, it turns our head away from the things of God and causes us to look at other things other than keeping our focus on Christ as we ought. That's an idol, dear friends. And if you love it, whether it's money or whatever it is, you know, maybe it's popularity, maybe it is, uh, you know, the kinds of things that this world offers men, applause. Whatever it might be, those things can become real idols for us. I'm not saying that you should be lazy and just sit around and read your Bibles. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we need to keep our focus on Christ. And we need to be prepared to serve the Lord. In order that we might understand the context of this passage, we will need to look at uh, what events in Elijah's life preceded this particular passage. So let's look at 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Elijah's victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. You remember. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. As one of the prophets that he had slain. So she said, I'm going to kill you just like you killed them. And when he saw that, when he saw that, look at that. When he saw that, it says, um, wait a minute, I lost my place. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. You ever prayed that, Lord, I'm just weary of life, just let me die. I'm ready to go to glory. Well, you may be, but obviously God wasn't ready to take him to glory not yet and sometimes we need to think in the same terms the reason that God hasn't called you yet to home to glory is because he still has work for you to do did I really mean that you betcha the reason why we are still here dear friends is because there are yet souls to be saved the reason why the Lord hasn't returned yet is because his work of grace is still ongoing and we need to be ready to serve him for those purposes now Lord take my life for I am no better than my father's well I guess you could certainly say that Elijah must have thought of himself as really being a powerful prophet and certainly one that had seen great victories for the Lord and yet the day after he calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and he kills the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them and probably the 400 or, uh, 400 or however many it was of the prophets of the Asherah. Uh, after he's done all that, yet he gets a message from Jezebel and what does he do? 
How does he respond? He runs in tremendous fear for his life. Now, I know that men are great and strong and we have wonderful abilities, but let a woman write a note to us and see how we react to it, you know? And that's exactly what happened with Elijah. It was just a little piece of paper. Then as he lay and slept under the broom, a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And after the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now in order to come to an understanding of our text, we must immediately see that what Elijah has in mind does not fit what the purposes and action of God has in store for his redeemed people. Elijah thought that God had given him permanent victory over the prophets of Baal. Yet when Elijah saw that what he did didn't seem to make a lasting impression or even a little difference for the cause of God and truth, he became discouraged. Anybody here ever get discouraged in your walk with God? Well, Elijah did too. And so we look at this, discouraged to the point that he was even wanting to die. Hear the word of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 15. And he, Jehaziel, pronounced uh, uh, as I did, said, Listen, all you of uh, Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. The Lord God of hosts has 7,000 faithful servants that he alone has reserved. He, God, alone has reserved, okay, for service. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that you are the only faithful servant of the Lord that is still serving God today? But sometimes when we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror and the only person we see is who? Me. It ain't a pretty picture. But I'm the only one that I can argue with. I mean, it's giving me that reflection back that says, you're the only one I see. Sometimes we believe that. But we're not looking at things in the same eyes that God uses. The Lord God of hosts has 7,000 faithful men, faithful servants that he has reserved for service. Beloved, Elijah was just stating the facts as they appeared to him. But do you wonder these same things at times about your own Christian service? Am I all alone? Are you all alone? Are you discouraged? Are you weary? In your mind, does it appear that you, uh, to you that Satan has gained the upper hand and that the Lord is losing the battle for the souls of men? 
Well, the only reason why we think that way is because in our minds, in our fleshly minds, it appears that way because we can't see the whole picture. We can't see what God is doing among us, His work of grace among us, and how it's being applied to those that are around us. If you are entertaining any of these thoughts in your life, I ask that you simply consider the message of today's text. Elijah's dilemma first. 1 Kings 19, 13 and 14, it says, Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. What is he saying when he says this? He's seeing the evidence of how it appears to him as to how God is working in their midst. Now, we know that there's a different story than that. Our text declares that Elijah was afraid of the wrath of Jezebel. 1 Kings 19, verses 2 through 3. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he rose up and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The question that God required Elijah to answer was, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You know, you talk to people sometimes, and, and you ask them, well, how are things going for you? And they said, well, pretty good under the circumstances. And of course, you know, one of my little trite Answers to that is, what are you doing there? What are you doing under the circumstances? You're not supposed to be under the circumstances. You're supposed to live above the circumstances. Well, does that happen? Well, it can, but you've got to have your focus on God in order for you to understand what those circumstances really mean. What appears to us is not necessary. what is really going on with God's work. And with us as his servants. Beloved, it is very comforting to our souls to know that God always comes to our rescue where we are. Not where we want to be, but where we are. And we as God's children need to recognize that. Be it on the top of the mountain or down in the valley, God is with us. We can't get away from the Lord. He is not on vacation. He hasn't gone someplace and left us alone. And that's exactly what Elijah was thinking. I'm all alone. I'm the only one that's serving God. No, God says by His grace, He has reserved. God has reserved. Not things that men have done, but what God has done. He has prepared and preserved 7,000 witnesses for himself. And so we need to be in that group. We need to be prepared to serve the Lord. The Lord God of Israel was so powerful as to rain down consuming fire on the sacrificial altar at, at Elijah's request of just 63 words. That's how long his prayer was. 
So it's not like you have to say a lot. God hears. He's not hard of hearing at all. And yet, even with those 63 words, his servant Elijah was so bold as to stand alone in total confidence that God would answer his prayer. Yet here we have a message, just a little scrap of paper sent by wicked Jezebel that struck absolute fear into the heart of this mighty prophet of God. Just a little note. Just a few words. What does it take to cause you to tremble in fear as you serve the Lord? Now there are several possibilities for his lapse into fleshly fear of her wicked threats. First, note that Jezebel was not intimidated by what Elijah had done at Mount Carmel. I can give you a good illustration of what's going on here. Jezebel wasn't intimidated by Elijah at all. She had not at all, she was not at all impressed with the fact that he was able to call down fire from heaven to concern the sacrifices made to Jehovah or to kill those 450 prophets of Baal by the edge of the sword. She was a woman of great importance and held influence and sway over the king, King Ahab. And she did not fear God. Did you hear what I said? She did not fear God. She wasn't too smart, but she did not fear God. Second, note that Jezebel was known for her wickedness and power of persuasion over others through manipulation and deceit. She secured a garden plot for King Ahab by murdering his neighbor. King Ahab had a, a neighbor that had a beautiful vineyard. He used to stand on his uh, castle walls and look out over that vineyard and say, oh, I wish that was mine. And so his wife said, aha, I'll give that to him for a birthday present. And so she made plans to be sure that somehow or another he got that land. By the way, it didn't go to his family. It went to King Ahab. Now, how she did that, I have no idea, but she did. She secured a garden plot for the king by murdering his neighbor. Hear the word of the Lord in 1 Kings 16, 30 through 33. Now, Ahab, the son of Omer, did evil, Omri, rather, excuse, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more so than all who were uh, before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a, uh, a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, uh, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that's a pretty good record, isn't it? I mean, isn't that amazing? Here was a guy, he was such a bad scoundrel that he did more to provoke God than all the rest of the evil kings that had served in Israel before him. Wow. You talk about uh, uh, 
see you write that on somebody's tombstone. See what they think. This was the wicked and evil character of Ahab as described in Scripture. Now let us also observe a description of his dear wife, Jezebel, that wicked queen who ruled by Ahab's side, 1 Kings 18, verses 3 through 4, and Ahab had called Obadiah, uh, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. By the way, there's a book in the scriptures that bears his name. Okay, so you get an idea where Obadiah was. Oh, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. So here's more that had been stashed away. Elijah had good reason to fear Jezebel's wrath, or did he? Third, note that the Lord God Almighty had commanded Elijah to confront King Ahab and challenge the false prophets of Baal and the false prophets of Asherah. 1 Kings 18.18, And Elijah answered Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house has, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You can see that Elijah had been emboldened by the action of God against Ahab and his kingdom. But note that this is critical to understanding Elijah's fear of Jezebel. Elijah thought that the Mount Carmel challenge would cause Ahab's defeat and the utter destruction of his wicked kingdom, but God had a greater lesson in store for Israel's people. And I would hasten that you remember to read those words in Romans 11, 2 through 10 again, where it talks about God reserving by His grace those who were prophets of God. Reserving by His grace. Secondly, Elijah's prayer. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 39. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of, his, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Well, they got the message. But I can tell you right now, if you read what it says in the scriptures, they got the message that, yeah, the Lord was God. But they weren't going to follow Him. And they didn't. Isn't it amazing? You know, you hear people today who ask for miracles. Oh, you know, if I could see a miracle like, you know, what Jesus performed or what Peter performed or Paul performed, it would make me a believer. No, it wouldn't. Because then you'd begin to doubt because of your flesh and your unbelief. And you say, well, maybe I need another miracle. And then I need another one and another one. And it still won't save you because you have to believe in God by faith. The Lord is seeking those to worship Him, but they must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
It's faith, dear folks, that causes us to have belief and trust in God. So, um, I forgot where I'm at. Secondly, Elijah's prayer. We read that. What a great victory that was for Elijah to see God's power and glory revealed to the people of Israel. God did this. God did this. No one else, just God. The Lord God Almighty alone displayed His omnipotent power to the people. Both the righteous and the unrighteous saw His hand of power at work. Yet they refused to heed the Lord's warning to them. And like the wicked Christians of our day, they see the hand of God at work in their midst and they still have no fear of God. You know the greatest miracle that we have witnessed to today? Now hear me when I'm saying this. And those of you who are not God's true children, you will not understand what I'm saying. The greatest miracle that we have witnessed to as God's people is when someone gets saved. Because there isn't any way that can happen without the direct intervention of the power of God upon their soul. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, He hath quickened, He hath made alive. That is the greatest miracle of all that we could see today. That's greater than walking on water or even raising the dead. Because God changes a dead soul into one that is a living servant for the Lord. Wow, it's good stuff. Might even be able to preach a sermon on that. Dear Christian, hear what God says. It starts with us. But that is not all that God is warning in this passage. For dear sinners, you too are, uh, you too are to hear the word of the Lord. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17 says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And when the sky proceeded as a, then the sky receded as a scroll, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Capital A and B. Speaking of Jesus Christ. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Yes, who indeed? Hear again what God declares of the wicked in Revelation 16, 10 through 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Even in the face of God himself, men are dead 
and can't understand what God is trying to tell them. And it's not until God awakens their soul and makes them understand through God life, through eternal life that he gives us because of his son Jesus Christ. It's only then that these men will repent of their sin. I don't know about you. Have you repented of any sins recently? I will tell you that is a, a real sure mark of what a Christian is. It's someone who has repented of their sins. And if you haven't repented of your sins, then I would say you're not saved. God's people keep a short account between themselves and God. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How wonderful it is that we as Christians have that verse of Scripture. It's not for the lost. That's for you and me. We can't confess if God doesn't awaken our soul. And it's because He awakens our soul that we are gladly identified as individuals who want to be in good account with God. Well, you may wonder, they did not repent of their sins, their deeds. Beloved, what does this have to do with Elijah's fear? Well, no message from God can change the heart of the wicked unless it is a message of saving grace. No matter when in history that the gospel of Christ is given forth, it will only save those who are those who are the called according to his purpose. How many of you quote Romans 8.28? I heard a song on the Christian radio the other day that was singing about Romans 8.28. And I told Sheila, I said, there's something dramatically wrong with that song. I said, they've, they've left out a very important part. And so much for Christianity that leaves out half of God's word. They can't know the truth of who and what God is if they don't quote the whole thing. And they talked about those that love God. But they didn't say this. Those who are called according to His purpose. Not my purpose, but His purpose, God's purpose. Wow, I'm telling you. Young people, if you're going to listen to the radio, I listen to... Uh, I forget what it's called. Uh, the public, public, NPR, NPR, National Public Radio. Do you know why? Because they have classical music on there, and I don't have to listen to all these filthy words that people put in there and say that they're Christian. I mean, I used to like Christian music, but it's to the point anymore. That, wow, it it just it sickens my soul. What does this have to do with the house of God where we're supposed to be worshiping the Lord? And yet, that's the world we live in today. And people are eating it up like there's no tomorrow without any discernment as to what is godly or ungodly. Well, it certainly can't be very good if they're leaving out words from the Scriptures. Those who are called according to his purpose, those intended to spiritually hear that sweet message of grace and love 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Lydia of old, the Lord of glory must open their hearts in order for them to hear the message of salvation. In Romans 8.28, and then again in Acts 16.14, Lydia is down at the river, and she's a seller of purple, and she's overhearing the prayer of Paul and the others that were gathered there. And it says that God opened her heart so she could believe. That's the kind of work that God does. He opens our hearts so that we can believe. Maybe we should pray that prayer for ourselves. Let us heed the words of the Lord Jesus to the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, 15 through 18. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am now sending you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from, power, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I love that passage of scripture. It's so powerful and it's so beautiful. You want to know what our work is on earth? There it is. God has called us to turn people who are in darkness to light. To tell them about Jesus Christ so that their soul can be awakened. Beloved, this is the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and called us and has placed us in reserve for his service. Again, the question must be asked, if you are struggling with the wickedness of the world around you, does the sin of this world vex your soul like it did that with Lot and Sodom? Or does it not even bother you? You could lay right down beside it and go to sleep. The wickedness of this world doesn't even phase your conscience a bit. Even Lot, and he was certainly not a good example. Even Lot was vexed by the world he saw around him. What, what is it like for you? Can you get down in the mud with the pigs and not get dirty and not smell bad? I don't think so. And yet, that's the kind of life that we want to be able to live. We want to be able to eat the husk like the pig farmers gave to the swine. And we think that this is good stuff. We're happy to get it. We're more than excited about this wonderful world we live in not realizing that it's a cursed world. That God has put a curse on it and it's going to pass away and all the things that are a part of this world are going to pass away until the new heavens and the new earth are provided by God, the kingdom that he has prepared from before the foundation of the world and we're going to be a part of if we're God's children. You know, we, we've spent all of our energy trying to build us a comfortable place on earth. And what good is it if it causes us to miss Christ? What good is it if we get through this life and we're not serving God as we ought to? We need to be sure that our focus is where it needs to be. Does the sin of this world vex your soul like it did lots? I hope, I hope that you're struggling 
I hope that it makes you upset. I hope it makes you mad. I hope that it makes you choose a different way. What did Gideon's men do with their pitchers of light and their swords? They broke the pitchers. The light could be seen. And they cried out for the Lord with their swords. They never had to do a thing with that sword. They had a sword, but they didn't have to do anything with it. We have a sword too. Maybe some of you think it's a penknife. I don't know. You don't take a penknife to a sword fight for sure. But the reality is, this is our sword. This is how we do battle. In a wicked world, it must be a spiritual battle. It must be a warfare that is aimed at bringing honor to God. Thirdly, Elijah's duty. It would seem that Elijah was more of a runner by nature. We would call his tactics similar to guerrilla warfare, you know, hit and run tactics, rather than a confrontational prophet. One that stands up and fights. Remember the question posed by the Lord to Elijah, suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, how I pray that you can search your soul with the same question from the Lord God Almighty today. Are you preparing yourself for service unto God? Are you worried about why the wicked men of this world seem to be winning? The cup of God's wrath is not yet full. It's the only reason why God has not called an end to this place. There are still souls to be saved. Are you consumed with fleshly fear? Are you perhaps just coasting along in life, waiting for the Lord to do something? <laughs> Doesn't this sound silly? How many of us, Pastor, talked about uh, praying for revival? I, I have a different look at that. I, I'm not against revival, but I think the first thing that we need to pray for is repentance. Our own repentance. It's not until we've repented of our sin and wickedness that God will then give us revival. And personally, I think that those are the places where you have to begin. You have to begin by looking in that mirror again and seeing yourself for who you really are. You know, James talks about the mirror of God's Word. And what does he say about those who look in that mirror of God's Word? That they go away and forget the image that they saw. We can't do that. God has saved you for a purpose, His purpose. If you are not in the battle's fray, you are a reservist, and you need to be prepared to practice and serve like our military weekend warriors, the National Guard. Standing at the ready to protect and serve, Jesus said, I am now sending you to open the eyes of their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Elijah's duty was not to run, but to confront the evil of his day. What is your duty? Are you a servant of the Most High God? What is your duty? To stand ready to serve. To be prepared to serve. 
to stand in reserve and be ready to serve. Elijah was not to give in to the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, but to confront them with the truth of who God, who the God of our salvation is. Isaiah 43.11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Jehovah God, who is our only Redeemer. It's not just an accident that the word Lord is used so many times in Scripture because the theme of the Scriptures is our salvation, and that is the name of our Redeemer God, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. So don't just read it and let it roll off your mind as if it doesn't mean anything. It means a lot. Because every time you see that word, you think about God saving souls. And besides me, there is no Savior. The Lord, He is God. What is your message to your neighbors and friends, to your co-workers and enemies of the faith? What is your duty? Let's stand, stand and we'll uh, have a word of prayer and sing a song. I think I might be able to croak something out here in a minute and we'll go from there. Let's stand. <coughs> Tom, would you like to lead us in closing prayer today? Okay, uh, we're going to come up and play. Okay.